it became clear that he was going to keep doing what he was doing until you were dead. Absolutely. There was no doubt in my mind. In fact, I was thinking he was attempting to cut my head off. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. The requirements to be a police officer are different for every state. To find out if you meet the requirements to be a police officer in your state, take a short three-question quiz by going to golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. That's golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. Law enforcement is a dangerous profession. Detective, now Special Agent William Gray, experienced that firsthand when he found himself in a fight for survival with a suspect, where the last one standing would be the one to live. With Special Agent William Gray, welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Tell me what you do in your current law enforcement role. Currently, I'm a special agent with Wisconsin's Department of Revenue uh, Alcohol and Tobacco Enforcement Unit, which is part of the Office of Criminal Investigations. So I uh, enforce all types of uh, tobacco laws, tax laws that uh, relate to tobacco, liquor, and beer, and how did you originally get into law enforcement? Well, I started in uh, 1983 with going into uh, the uh, what was known back then as police science. Um, and uh, I was just too young, I think, at 19 years of age at that point and didn't really know who I was. So I chose to uh, quit school and I went into the U.S. Army Military Police and I excelled at what I did. I really enjoyed it. And I knew it was uh, something, a career in the military that I could then turn into a career once I got out. I ended up getting into uh, part-time law enforcement jobs uh, and then eventually full-time. Can we go back to November of 2014? What, what was your title with Chippewa County Sheriff's Office at that time? I was the financial crimes detective. Can you give me an example of what types of cases you were working? They kind of ranged from some white-collar crimes, some where you would have a person who was uh, taking care of, for, for instance, an, an elderly lady and was stealing checks and, and uh, got all the information that that person, the suspect, needed to then get into that elderly lady's checking account and start draining that account. Uh, I, I worked any number of those types of cases, uh, some that uh, branched out into Pennsylvania, Ohio. Um, and once in a while, I would get a uh, child abuse case um, or uh, and even uh, fatality crashes that I would investigate. But pretty much my main job is financial crimes. Back on November 14th of, of 2014, were you contacted by... A federal agency? Yes, I was contacted by Homeland Security, an agent out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And what did they ask you to do? 
Well, first of all, he informed me that a 17-year-old female from Tampa, Florida, was now listed as a missing juvenile, not a runaway. And they told me that the last time anybody knew uh, of her whereabouts, that she had met up with a, an individual from the United Kingdom who had flown into Tampa. Uh, some questions were asked of that individual, and based on his answers and the fact that he was intending to meet up with a 17-year-old, they seized his passport but then turned around and gave him a one-day parole visa into the country because they didn't have any room for him at a uh, holding facility, is my understanding. So uh, Homeland Security told me they had no idea why he used the address he used in Chippewa County, but they requested that I go to that address, try to make contact with him and the female that was missing to make sure that she was okay. Was this an unusual request? It was. I was very surprised. Um, you know, first of all, you have a 20-year-old male flying in from the United Kingdom to meet up with a 17-year-old girl, and now this 17-year-old girl is missing. Um, and the unusual part was, you know, why why rural Wisconsin? I presume you go to the, the address in, in Chippewa County that was listed? Yes. Uh, in fact, I attempted to get somebody to go with me, but unfortunately it was lunchtime, it was also Friday, the weekend of deer hunting, and it was also 16 degrees below zero that day. So you take those three things into account and and the fact that Homeland Security, uh, they were telling me they had no idea why he used that address and they weren't sure um, if we would even find him there. They didn't suspect he would be there. They thought he would be there in, probably in Florida somewhere. So I just uh, went by myself. And what happened when you showed up at that address? Uh, I, I encountered another individual who was actually outside the address working. And as soon as I, I, I saw him and I realized that this, this building actually has four apartments in it. And Homeland Security had not given me an apartment number. So I thought I would just start, obviously, with door number one and then work my way around the building to see if anybody had uh, seen her. Well, it turns out that the individual I encountered outside, his father owns that address, and they live right in the back of that apartment building. So when I showed him the photographs, uh, he claimed he had not seen either one of those individuals. So I had a passport photo of the uh, suspect, and I had a uh, color photograph of the missing juvenile, and he assured me he had not seen either one of them. Well, at that point, uh, they had already, the uh, suspect and this female had already been in the United States for 34 days because they actually, uh, he actually uh, got into the United States on October 10th, and this was November 14th. So I was certain that, you know, I should say I was more, more than likely that individual was not there. And even if he would have been there, he wasn't going to answer the door. I knew that the individuals who lived in apartment one had been in contact with our law enforcement agency uh, previously. And there were some issues, uh, including drug-related issues. And uh, I also believe that that 17-year-old girl who actually lived at the apartment, not the one that Sharinda brought with him, but the one that uh, lived in the apartment, was into drugs 
and other items or other things. And so as I'm standing there talking to who I believe was the 17-year-old who actually lived at that apartment, the door just closed and nobody would come out. So I moved over to my right about 20 feet and started knocking on the second door or apartment number two. And all of a sudden to my left, it was probably about a half a minute or so, uh, the door opened up and I heard a male voice ask me if he could help me. And he had a very thick English accent. So I looked over and it sure appeared to me that that was the suspect that Homeland Security sent me out to find. I walked back toward him and I asked him what his name was. He gave me a fictitious name, pointed to the photograph that I had uh, of his passport photo. And I said, you sure look a lot like this guy. And he said, yeah, that's me. And I asked him why he used the fictitious name. And he said, because nobody could remember how to pronounce his name. Uh, turns out he, is, uh, he was half Pakistani and half Indian. And so his name was a little bit more difficult for people to pronounce or remember. And what was his demeanor when he came out? Was he confrontational? Not at all. Very nice. Um, he informed me that he was aware that Homeland Security was looking for him and that he had been on the run for 34 days. He informed me several times that he was going to be fully cooperative. He did not want any trouble and he didn't want to get into any further trouble than he'd already been in because of the fact that he was on the run and he brought this girl up to uh, Wisconsin from Florida. So he invited me into the house. Well, it was 16 degrees below zero without the wind chill that day. And I was looking at the storm door and looking at the inside of the house. And it was just one step inside. And I let the storm door close behind me. And at that same time, I heard a deputy from our agency on the radio. And given the address, I knew he was very close by, less than a mile, in fact. So I contacted him and said, I, I told him that I needed assistance and uh, as soon as he could get there. And within a couple minutes, he actually arrived and he came inside the house, uh, in the, the apartment, I should say. The suspect was only wearing a t-shirt and a pair of jogging pants at that time, uh, as well as a, a zip-up jacket that matched his pants. And uh, he was sitting at the table and he in, immediately started texting, or, or what I thought was texting, and I asked him who he was texting, and he said, the girl that you're looking for. And he said, I'm actually on, a, on an app called Kick, which is spelled K-I-K, which is out of Canada. And that particular app is, is known for a lot of nudity and, and videos that underagers send you know, to people um, using that app. So... Uh, that caught my curiosity right away, and I asked him, I said, well, <clears throat> where is she? And he said, well, she's in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and she's smoking meth with an individual, a guy that is missing half of one of his legs. And he assured me that he could take me to that apartment and show me where it was, and, and he would assist us in attempting to get her in custody and send her back to Florida because in his, his words, she was a, a pain in his butt and had stolen $8,000 from him in the short amount of time that they had been there. To, and she was using that money to purchase meth and smoke with uh, several individuals. So he ends up sending her a, a text, but he tells her, or I should say a chat on uh, kick. And he tells her that law enforcement is there and they want her to come back to the apartment. 
well, of course, she wrote back and said, uh, you know, laugh out loud, good luck finding me. So I put him in handcuffs after that, and I was continuing to talk to him, uh, believing that he's, you know, or knowing that he's a fugitive from Homeland Security. He's been on the run for 34 days, and we really don't know what he did with this female until I laid my eyes on her. Uh, I put him in handcuffs, and uh, he sat back down on the chair, and as I was talking to him, the 17-year-old girl who lived at that apartment just appears out of a back bedroom. And she is. Uh, she started giving me a hassle, and, and I was trying to get her to contact her mother because I wanted her mother to be at that residence while myself and the deputy that was with me were in the house. And uh, she refused to call her, claimed her phone didn't work. And then, you know, when I offered to make the call for her, she said she didn't remember her mother's phone number. Uh, eventually, I, I asked her if it would be okay if I just take a look through the apartment to make sure that that female that we were looking for wasn't hiding in the apartment at the time we were there. She initially refused, and the deputy that was with me told her that we weren't there to look for drugs. We were just there to verify that that 17-year-old who was missing is not was not there. So she allowed me to search the apartment. Prior to doing the search, I had called the Homeland Security agent to let him know I actually had Surrender in custody. He was not at his desk, and that was the only phone I had, so I left a message. As I was searching the apartment, we saw numerous bongs uh, in in the the girl who lived at the apartment in her bedroom. I didn't say anything about them, but later, before I left the apartment, I did make her smash them all. And she was very upset with me about that. And getting back to Sharinder, eventually the Homeland Security agent called me and told me that if I felt safe and that Sharinder was being cooperative, that I should attempt to take him back to the sheriff's office voluntarily and I should unhandcuff him. And uh, the Homeland Security agent's thinking was that if Sharinder made it to the uh, interview and then admitted to having sexual relationships with these underage girls, the belief was that we could hold them. The problem with that was that our district attorney's office is not going to hold an individual who's 20 years old, who was, who may have had sex with a girl who's 17 and going to be 18 in a month. So I explained that to the agent and he said, well, they would still like me to try to get uh, Sherinder's cooperation in finding this girl that was missing. So I went back out to where Sherinder was and I stood him up and I was going to search him. And the deputy who was with me said he had already taken care of that when I stepped outside to take that phone call from the Homeland Security agent. And uh, I, I knew that deputy well. Uh, I, in fact, I was one of his trainers. And uh, if he told me he searched him, um, uh, I believed him. And I believed he would have done a good job searching it. Took the handcuffs off Sharinder, and Sharinder asked me at that point if he could go to his backpack, which was only about 10 feet away, and he asked to get something out of his backpack. I don't remember what he asked for, and neither does the deputy that was with me, but we both have talked since then, and neither one of us was concerned about what he pulled out of his backpack, you know, as far as a safety concern. And looking back, I believe it was his stocking cap now. But regardless, 
if it was a stocking cap, I should have searched it, and I, I, I did not. But Surrender agreed to go with me voluntarily to the sheriff's office for an interview. And at that point, we both walked out to my uh, the, the vehicle that I was using from the sheriff's office, which was a uh, Chevy Impala that was completely unmarked. And uh, the only thing I had in it besides radio, siren, and lights was a laptop cradle that separated myself from the passenger in the front seat, which is where Surrender sat unhandcuffed because, as investigators, we did not have cages in our squad cars for transportation. And because there was no cage, it was safer to have the individual sitting next to you rather than behind you. Is that the case? That is correct, yes. I could keep my eyes on him, uh, peripheral vision and stuff like that, while he's seated next to me versus behind me. Can you describe as far as how old were you at the time? 49. I'm approximately six foot one and I weigh 185 pounds. Um, I, I've stayed in good shape all my life. I spent 15 and a half years in the military before my back, my lower back was crushed in Iraq. Even then, I went on to the SWAT team for Chippewa County initially as a entry team member, and then the last three years I spent as a sniper after attending sniper school. How old was the suspect at that time? 20. I learned later he was also a construction worker from the United Kingdom. So he's younger and presumably stronger than you are. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're in the car, he's sitting next to you, you've got your laptop between you. Where do you go from there? We drove to the sheriff's office, um, um, and when we arrived, I pulled right up to the main front door of the sheriff's office and, and uh, brought my laptop out of the cradle and walked Surrender into the sheriff's office for this interview, which is on the, our interview room uh, was on the bottom floor, the first floor of the sheriff's office. I uh, went in there and sat him down and um, when we began the interview. At one point, I took a break, and I was texting the Homeland Security agent back and forth, asking if they had made a decision yet on whether or not they were going to come up and, and take custody of Surrender. And I went upstairs quickly after I asked somebody to watch Surrender for me to grab my lieutenant, and he came downstairs with me, and we both interviewed Surrender for a little bit. And then eventually the Homeland Security agent said, okay, we're going to place a hold on him, let him know that, but ask him if he'll still assist you folks in trying to find the girl in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is approximately 20 miles from or 20 minutes from the uh, Chippewa County Sheriff's Office. So I took Surrender with me upstairs to where the investigators' offices are, and I sat him in the conference room with a couple deputy sheriffs and a couple investigators. And I went to the phone, made a phone call to a drug unit, um, the West Central Drug Task Force, uh, where I used to work uh, undercover, and asked if uh, that individual could come and assist me in driving this guy to, to uh, surrender to Eau Claire so that we would be in an unmarked vehicle. And he said he would. He showed up. I found out later that while Surrender was in that conference room with the investigators and a couple deputies, that somebody searched him again. Because of the fact he was on, you know, he's upstairs in the investigators' offices, and and uh, there are weapons and stuff up there, so they decided to somebody searched him again. Um, we then transported Surrender to Eau Claire. He pointed out the house where this girl was. 
or where he believed she was. We attempted to make contact with her there. Uh, there was a TV that was on and it shut off. So we believe somebody was in the apartment, but nobody was going to come to the door. And then as we got back in the vehicle, we were headed back to Chippewa, the Chippewa County Sheriff's Office. Uh, Sharinder looked back at me. He was seated in the front seat next to the driver. And he looked back at me and asked me if I would take him back to the apartment where I found him because all he had brought with him from the United Kingdom was the backpack that I saw him reach into. And it did not make me nervous to take him back to the apartment where I found him because I had had him with me for three and a half hours by that time already. So he'd been very, very cooperative. He was apologetic and saying he didn't want to be in any more trouble, et cetera, et cetera. So you go back to the, to the sheriff's office and then you go, you and Surrender go back into your vehicle. Is that correct? Yes. And what happens? Anything unusual at that point? Uh, just the fact that he grabbed my laptop cradle and kind of gave it a twist. And when there's a laptop cradle in the front seats, you know, between the two front seats, there's a a large pole that connects that lap or keeps that laptop cradle stable and height where you would need it. Well, that actually is in the passenger's way a little bit. It's actually resting right up against the, the passenger's left leg. So I thought he was just trying to move it over for him so he would be more comfortable. So I just grabbed it and I kind of straightened it out, which looking back now, I know why he did that, or I believe I know why he did that. So at that point, we left the sheriff's office and we started back toward the apartment. And that was when Sharinder said to me that the girl we were looking for that was in Eau Claire, he said, you know, she only has a suitcase that she brought with her which is also at the apartment where you found me. And he said she may have been alerted by the young lady that lives at that apartment, who was also 17, when we left with Surrender to go to the sheriff's office, if that makes sense. And now I'm, I, at that point, I was starting to think, well, great. Now I could have Surrender, two 17-year-old females, and the mother that lives at that apartment, and they're all going to be against me because, again, I also made that young lady smash all of her bongs before I left, so she's upset. That was at the point where I pulled into a parking lot uh, of a business and uh, faced my squad car toward the road and put it in park, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to go there without some backup. So I got on the radio I'm sorry, I got on the phone, and uh, my lieutenant only lives a couple miles from me, but it was about 10 miles from where I was then parked. And I didn't know how far my lieutenant was, but I had heard that he was heading home for the for the evening. So I called him on uh, my county-issued flip phone, and I asked him if he could come back toward me um, to go to that apartment with Surrender. And my lieutenant informed me at that point he was too far away and almost home. He said he would turn around, but he thought it would be better if I just called the area squad to, to have them come and help me. So I, uh, I put my flip phone in my left hand, and I, and I was still in my seatbelt. Surrender was still in his seatbelt, also seated right next to me. And I picked up the microphone. I called for the area car. The area car answered and told me where he was, which I knew from patrolling, he was somewhere between five and seven miles away. So I hung the mic back up on the, uh, on my dash and I put the flip phone in my right hand 
Well, when I hung the mic back up and I put the phone back into my right hand, I was looking to my left down the road, watching people going home from work, presumably. And Sharinder reached over and punched me in the side of the right side of my head or my cheekbone area. And I was just completely stunned. He, he hit me so hard that the phone flew out of my hand and unknown to me, it landed uh, between my legs on the seat, but it, it remained open. So my lieutenant was hearing a scuffle, but he later told me he couldn't really tell what was going on. But uh, I looked over to my right after I kind of shook it off and I was thinking to myself, great, now he's going to throw the door open and he's going to be running away. And I looked over to my right and instead what I saw was Surrender with his back up against the door with this horrific grimacing face that he was making and a knife held him. He had a, a, a knife in his right hand held up by the window, by his right shoulder. And I saw the knife. And as soon as I saw the knife, I went for the seatbelt buckle and the door not, or the door handle at the same time, because I wanted to just get out and create distance between the two of us and get my weapon out. Well, I, I believe that Sharinder had this plan the whole time because when I was on the phone is when he quietly got his seatbelt off, got this folding knife out of wherever he had it hidden. And as soon as I went for that seatbelt buckle, he dove at me and used his left hand to pin my right hand to the, to the seat, to the upper portion of the seat that I was in. And he held it there so I couldn't get my seatbelt off. And he also knew my gun was under my coat, which because of how cold it was, I was wearing two different coats. And he just continuously uh, slashed at me and tried to slit my throat uh, on the right side, which he eventually did do. Um, he cut my nose almost completely off, stabbed me in the cheekbone area three different times underneath my chin on the right side. And at some point I got a, I got a hold of Surrender and started to try to gouge out his, his right eye. He let out a holler and he kind of stopped. And when he stopped, I grabbed the microphone and hollered for help. But as Murphy's law would have it, a uh, officer from a different jurisdiction keyed the microphone at the same time I did. I found out later and dispatch never heard me calling for help. So you're, you're right-handed, your weapons in your holster on your right side, the seatbelt's there, and you're still stuck in your seatbelt, unable to get your weapon out. Correct. And the car's running, so every time my foot hit the brake while I was trying to defend myself, my seatbelt was locking. So I couldn't get forward, and he has all the momentum, and he's right-handed, and again, 20 years old and a construction worker. So... After I tried to gouge his eye out and I had called for help, he knocked my arm off the microphone, which then the microphone landed on the floor. And Surrender stopped and looked at me for a split second. And all I said to him at that point, thinking in my mind, maybe I could calm him down and, and, and speak reason to him. I said, dude, what are you doing? I said, I've, I've got a wife and kids. Settle down. And he launched himself got a knee up on top of my laptop cradle, got over top of me and back between my head and the headrest of my seat. And I knew he was going to try to slit the right left side of my throat because he had already gotten my right side. And I saw him switch hands with the knife. And as soon as he did that, um, he stabbed me in the face. So I, I put my 
left jawbone toward my left shoulder so he couldn't get access to my throat. And so instead, he ended up stabbing me in the left side, and it, the knife hit my jawbone and caused a pretty good laceration, went down into my throat and cut both arteries or two arteries that come off of your carotid artery that, that feed the blood to your cheek and your neck. And then he stuck it in my Adam's apple and he, he sliced back about three or four inches and laid my throat wide open on that side. Well, it was at that point that I realized that my left, or excuse me, my right hand was free. So I hit the seatbelt buckle. And as soon as that buckle came undone and started going across my chest, which seemed like forever, I grabbed Surrender with my left hand and shoved him as hard as I could. He ended up landing in the passenger seat again, but this time his his knees were on the front edge of the seat and his head was against the upper portion of the seat where he was looking down into his seat and he tried to get back up a couple uh, get back up a couple of times and still had the knife with him. And I was holding him there with my left hand only by the shoulder, his right shoulder of his coat and I am almost straightened out completely underneath my steering wheel, trying to get my coat over my gun and then get to my gun. And all I could do was get to my gun. And then when I got to my gun, my hand slipped off the gun because it was so full of blood. It looked like I had dipped my hand in a gallon of red paint. With as many times as you had been stabbed, both arteries in your neck had been cut. Were you thinking that you're not going to last much longer and you're not going to have much more of a chance to get out of this? You know, you don't, you have a lot of these little mini conversations with yourself is the best way I can put it. And the thought of death never creeped into my mind at that point, other than the fact that I knew I was losing a fair amount of blood. My biggest thing was to stop what he was doing and to get out of the car. And I knew the only way that that was going to happen because by that point I had already been stabbed 14 times and I eventually lost five pints of blood. It became clear that he was going to keep doing what he was doing until you were dead. Absolutely. There was no doubt in my mind. In fact, I was thinking he was attempting to cut my head off. When he got up over, uh, over and then onto my left side, I just all I could envision was this guy trying to cut my head off. You know, the other thing is, is he was hitting me so hard, it felt like he, I was in a boxing match. But in fact, he was actually stabbing me and hitting me at the same time with his, that right hand. So it was like I thought he was trying to knock me out, and then he was just going to cut my head off and leave it in my lap. So you finally got your seatbelt off. You kind of got your body straight underneath the dash. What happened next? And then, I, like I said, I got a hold of the gun after I got my coat over it, and I'm still holding on to him. He's still trying to jerk away from my hand to stand, you know, to get back up to continue his attack, in my opinion. Uh, eventually, I got my gun out, uh, which was a full-size Sig Sauer P226 40 caliber. And the, I was so close to him, I couldn't shoot him in the side of the head. So all I could see was light coming in underneath his chin, you know, in between his, the bottom of his chin and the seat. So I, I stuck the gun underneath his chin and pulled the trigger and all life in that 
young man stopped. I mean, it was as quick as shutting off a light switch. And I was, I was kind of amazed that, you know, that his head didn't kind of explode or something. I would, that's kind of what I was expecting from that hollow point bullet. And all I remember was looking at his face or looking at his mouth because there was a couple gurgles that came that were like in the back of his throat. And I looked at him and his eyes were open. He was staring straight ahead and there was zero life left in him. And I was just amazed that when, you know, we talk about shooting and for the central nervous system that, you know, that one and a half inch wide strip that it shuts everything down immediately. And that's exactly what happened. Was there a sense of relief that whatever was happening had stopped? Absolutely. Uh, I look back all the time about that, and I, I, I hesitate to use the word joy, but I was, I was very relieved that it was over and that I was going to live. I was just overcome with, with, with relief. And at that point, my, I looked at my gun because my gun felt different. And here the gun was jammed. I believe the slide went back and hit the seat and came back forward so fast that the casing didn't even get a chance to eject out of the throat of the barrel all the way and jammed just like that. It wasn't like a stovepipe, but it had jammed. And I looked at my left hand as I was kind of like handing the gun over to my left hand. In my left hand, I just I saw all the huge gaping wounds in my left hand because, you know, the defensive mode for my, that I was in and the fact he had my right hand pinned. And I was kind of disgusted that I had to shoot this, this guy because I didn't want to. And my gun was jammed, so I just threw it on the floorboard of my car. I kind of went into investigator mode, too. I was thinking, well, they're going to want my gun. They're going to take that anyway. So rather than clear the jam and put it back in my holster... I just, I, I sat up and leaned forward and it was like a 12 ounce glass of blood just splashed in my lap and on the floor because it was pooling in my neck from when I was laying straight, trying to get my gun out. Well, at that point I knew I was bleeding pretty bad. So I, I just got out of the car. I walked around the door and I, I took a knee in the parking lot, grabbed a hold of the left side of my throat and put pressure where I thought I was bleeding the most. There was two ladies inside the business that were still working, which I had no idea about. And one of them was caught on 911, and the other one was bringing fresh towels out to put on my throat. Ship of County 911. Yes, we have an emergency at Blue Ribbon Awards on Highway J, 163. Yes. There's a man in the parking lot. It looked like he was fighting with somebody in his car, and he's got out of his car, and he's got blood all over his hands and face, and he's kneeling in the parking lot bleeding. Yeah, we, got, we had officers out there in the parking lot. I'm not sure if they're trying to take somebody into custody, but we do have officers out there, okay? There's no officers, and he just there. collapsed. Okay, we got an officer that's out in there in plain clothes. Hold on one moment. Okay. Hold on one moment. Okay. okay. They have an officer in plain clothes. Maybe that's... Hold on one moment. Okay. There's another man stopping out on the road. Yep. Yeah, we got an officer out there in plain clothes. There might be two of them out there. Okay, hold on one moment. I'm going to just see if they need an ambulance, okay? Uh, I think just somebody does. Yes, sir. They're in there, Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, ma'am? Yes. We got an officer out there now. Yes. And a marked squad. Yes. Okay, yeah. We do have a plainclothes investigator out there with a male subject, so. He sounded, it's, I sounded like I heard a gunshot. And he's holding his neck where he's bleeding. Okay, who's 
Um, There's a man on the ground. I don't know if it's an officer or not. The other office of the sheriff's marked car is here now. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Hold on one moment. Okay. Ma'am? Yes. Is there another person out there too, another male? I don't see anybody else, but I can't see inside the car. Okay. The sheriff's checking inside the car. Okay. Obviously, I'm sure backup came from all over. What was their reaction to seeing you completely covered in blood? Yeah, the first deputy that arrived on scene was is a good friend of mine, and then just shortly thereafter, another one came in, and and I remember that deputy, the first deputy, running over to me and asking me, you know, what happened and were you shot because he didn't see a gun in my holster, he didn't know if the suspect got the gun and shot me in the throat because at that point everybody had towels on me. I, I said no, the suspect's in the car. He stabbed me. And uh, he asked me if he was dead, and I said yes. And he went over to the car and opened the door and then saw the suspect all curled up in the ball with his uh, with the knife in his uh, right hand still. And then he came running back over to me, and at that point I had closed my eyes because I was trying to concentrate on my breathing. Well, the poor deputy's he's yelling at me, Bill, 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 <laughs> you know, don't go to the light kind of thing, you know? And he, he thought I, he, I talked to him later. He said, I thought you had died. And how long were you in surgery? I want to say it was over four and a half hours. I think. I presume that you were in the hospital for several days as well. Yeah. For, I was there for five days on the fifth day I left. Everybody always talks about the dangers of law enforcement. You experienced it very firsthand and survived. What advice would you have for somebody who's either considering going into law enforcement and or has already made that decision that they do want to go into law enforcement as a career? Take your training seriously. Every single one of us dating back to when law enforcement first started raised our hand and said we wanted to do this job knowing full well you could get injured or give your life in the line of duty to protect one of your fellow officers or a civilian. And if you are injured, whether cut, stabbed, beat, you don't quit in the fight, and you certainly don't want to quit afterwards, if you can at all do it. Special Agent Gray, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honored. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com. To help you get that law enforcement job you want and deserve, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com. That's jobtipsnow.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.